James. Duncan. How are you today? I'm well, Duncan. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. We haven't done one of these for a while, so let's get going. Today, yeah. we're talking about why facts won't change your mind. So, James, I've got something for you. What's the best way? No. Um, what's the best way to change someone's mind? I don't know, Duncan. Tell them they're wrong. Oh. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I, can, I can't see how that wouldn't work. Yeah, and one other one. What's the only thing you could be right about? Mm. Being wrong. Oh, I don't know if that's right, but I, I guess that probably makes you right then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you picked this article. Why'd you pick it? All right, so um, what we're talking about today is an article from The New Yorker called Why Facts Don't Change People's Minds. And I have to, um, uh, you know, t- tell you up front, Duncan, that this was one of uh, the most impactful articles I've read um, in a in a long time. It was one of those uh, real aha moments that once you've finished reading it, you feel like you have a different uh, viewpoint on the world. So, um, going straight into it, what it uh, what it covers is that contrary to conventional wisdom, uh, which was true for me at the time too is that we're not entirely rational beings. I know, hard to believe. (laughs) Or that we base our reasonings entirely on facts. Instead, according to uh, what the researchers from Stanford in this article um, have shown, is that our decisions or our beliefs are driven more from a social construct in that we are geared towards collaboration rather than logical thinking. Um, So this is really interesting. And and um, there was another... uh, reference to a book called The Enigma, the Enigma of Reason, where mm-hmm. this, uh, the researchers look at the human's biggest advantage over other species. So if you look at this back in, in history, you had the Homo sapiens and you had the Neanderthals. We weren't better than the Neanderthals because we were stronger than them. They were actually much bigger. But it was due to our ability to cooperate. And cooperation is difficult to establish and almost as difficult to sustain. So how did that play in? Well, they say it plays in because our ability to reason isn't based in logic. It's based in working with other people. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think, I don't know why, but I kind of think that I thought I was rational. And then think about it, like, have are all the actions you've ever done, Duncan, rational? Like, no. <laughs> um, and I don't know why I had this illusion that I thought I was. Um, but, yeah, you make decisions based on facts and you make a good decision. You don't make it based on emotion or something else. And so a quote that I like is, if you want to persuade, appeal to self-interest, not to reason, from Ben Franklin. And I think one of the examples where this became clearer to me, I worked in finance sort of starting in 2007, And the prevailing market orthodoxy was like efficient market hypothesis. And someone like Alan Greenspan, who was the ex-Fed chair, the Federal Reserve, said that banks didn't need to be regulated because they would self-regulate. Why would they actually do something silly like put themselves out of business? They didn't need to do that because they would make sure they looked after the interests of the system. And then we had the global financial crisis where a lot of banks went out of business and it was pretty clear they weren't doing a very good job at self-regulating. <laughs> um, and so for me, that was sort of one of the key points, uh, you know, this is sort of 2007, 2008, where I was like, hold up, people aren't actually acting rationally. Companies aren't acting rationally. And so I don't know why, but I did think they were rational. And I suppose I thought I was also rational. But now I think about it, 
I don't think there. I think there's actually a lot of irrationality around. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And to your point, Duncan, without giving it any thought, I always uh, considered myself, uh, you know, always steeped in uh, rational thinking or logical thinking as a way of making sense of the world. Uh, and that, that was kind of um, the basis for how I thought I understood things, that there was a, a, a certain, uh, I guess, scientific element to the way things work, and that uh, your ability to understand or to interact with the world was um, through an entirely logical lens. Um, but it was similar to, to what you, you expressed in terms of, it wasn't until I realized that when I was trying to apply this understanding to my arguments or let's say constructive conversations with other people, <laughs> that this wasn't getting anywhere. And um, this was also something that uh, was quite prevalent in your and my discussion from an early period as well. But I think um, uh, the, uh, the more playful nature didn't have to mask the fact that we weren't being very rational beings either. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing that we talked about then is, you know, humans not being rational. I think more and more I've come to believe we aren't. <laughs> um, you know, Ben Franklin was talking about appealing to self-interest. Uh, another one you know, I sort of see a bit round at the moment is, is values. Um, so I think mm. the very first podcast we had, we talked about Cambridge Analytica. Mm. And, and what they were saying is that you can get someone to vote on something. So, for instance, in America, like, you know, I want to be able to keep my guns. And you may, for instance, you know, the Republicans are a more gun-friendly party, but you may disagree with everything else that they do. So, I don't know, all the other policy they have, but you care about the guns one. And because of that, you disregard everything else and you just vote on that one thing, which is that value. So it's like pick one value <laughs> that you, and then you will override any kind of other logic. Like, ah, oh, well, actually, in my life, if I add all these things up, then the net most party I like the most is the, the Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it might be significantly, but I don't care because of this one thing. And so I think we've seen examples again and again where, for better or worse, humans aren't rational. Yeah, so that's a really good uh, point in terms of talking about values. Uh, and they did a study on this uh, specifically relating to guns in the US and also uh, vaccination. And what they did was they looked at people who held these, um, you know, predefined set of uh, uh, belief systems or values around whether the guns are good or bad, whether vaccination is good or bad. And then they would present those people with, um, you know, objectively scientific statistics. Um, and they would be basically also an argument to say that they are actually really bad, and here's why, or they're not as bad as we thought they were. Um, and here's why. And what they found was that everyone who, um, let's just pick guns, who thought guns were bad in the beginning, if the, the, if the report said that, that, yes, they are bad, then it further entrenches their beliefs, their views. But if they read that they're not as bad, then they don't move the dial. They just hold their ground instead. Uh, and this was true for um, people in vaccination as well. Um, what they found was that if you give them statistics saying there's no link to autism, there's nothing that says that vaccination is bad, they don't change their views. But if they say the other way around, to say the science is still out, it'll make their views even stronger. Yeah, I think this is one way I'd characterize this is confirmation bias. So one of the most famous biases is that we basically look for information that confirms our view 
and we discredit or we you know undervalue yeah. information that actually disconfirms our view and so this has just been seen to be in humans all over the place so you have confirmation bias and, and one of the things that i try to do to counter this is like looking at like karl popper and falsification so actually what you want to do is look for reasons why your view is wrong mm. not look for reasons why it's right yeah and then when you do that, you're sort of countering your inbuilt bias for like, of course, I want to be right. Like most people don't want to be wrong. <laughs> um, and so you know, I think school tells you that. Yeah. You, you don't want to be getting 0% on the exam. You know, there's, you want to be right. <laughs> uh, and, and school also sort of purports that there is a right answer for a lot of things. And for, in a lot of places, there isn't really. So, yeah, I think you're sort of referring to confirmation bias and it's real. And so I think it's more important to try to find why you're wrong, not why you're right. I 100% agree. Um, just quickly on the confirmation bias um, topic, um, the, the researchers in the article actually pointed out that this has actually been shown to be intrinsic uh, in us from the early stages of man. But it's, it just seems almost silly or counterintuitive that such a supposed vulnerability in our makeup or bug in the system wouldn't have killed us out by now. Like if you think about, uh, you know, there's a, um, you know, there's a predator hiding in the bushes and your belief is that there is no predator, um, regardless of the information, well, the predator will jump out and kill you because you didn't choose to believe that fact. Um, but because it hasn't killed us out, they posit that there must have been an adaptive function for that. Uh, and this is or this function is around our hyper sociability, and what they're talking about there is that our ability to not, uh, I guess, view the world in the way that it really is, but to view the world in the way that the collective culture or tribe makes you far more likely to survive in a community um, surround. Hmm. I, I'm not sure that you're implementing. Con, you know, confirmation bias in the way that I understand it. Um, like basically, humans used to live in hunter-gatherer tribes, and what there is, I said, there's two thoughts: you know, thinking fast and thinking slow. And thinking fast is like an inbuilt reaction. Mm. So you know that if you hear the bushes rustle, there's something in there. Jump. You don't have to think about it. It's an automatic response. Mm. And you know that I don't know that face that your partner's making means they're unhappy at you. <laughs> you don't need to think about it. You know, right? And so the difference is that today we actually need to make a lot of decisions that aren't slow. So a lot of the stuff we need to do is new. And that's because we're not doing the same thing. Like it, back in the day, it was, what do I do today? Same thing I did yesterday, wake up and go hunting and gathering. What do I do tomorrow? Hunting and gathering. <laughs> but, you know, today you can automate a lot of things. And so... What is more important is making decisions about problem solving. Whereas in the past, the decision was much more, uh-oh, we're hunting the thing. Is something hunting me while I'm hunting the thing? If I hear that rustle, I do the same thing every time. And so I think confirmation bias may not have been, in my understanding, as much of a problem in the past. In fact, it possibly wasn't a problem because you didn't need to solve new problems the whole time. Um, so, yeah, I think it might just be a fact of you know, society of the actual, you know, you're told from birth, you want to be right, you don't want to be wrong. That's what school is. Mm. And so therefore, you look for reasons why you're right. And if someone tells you you're wrong, your instinct is to tell them, no, I'm not wrong. Actually, you misunderstood why you think I'm wrong. I'm actually right. Mm. Rather than sort of saying, oh, have you, are you going to help me? Is this an opportunity to learn? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, th I think maybe to be fair, to, to go back to um, the example being given, I don't think confirmation bias was a problem in uh, early stages of man. I think it was actually helpful in the sense that by always intuiting your set of beliefs based on the wider group, you're more likely to be assimilated and accepted into that group. So what, mm, I get you. Yeah. 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 Um, so it has that kind of social function. Uh, one of my most favorite references of all time. Uh, most favorite. Most favorite. <laughs> favorite test. Um, Your favorite reference. Yeah, go on. Is, Not that I'm good at grammar, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I've butchered this everywhere. Yeah, go on. Um, and, I'm, and I can't remember what he's called, but he's... Uh, so there's a writer, Tim Urban, uh, who does Wave Up, <laughs> um, who talks about the, the social woolly mammoth or the... Uh, I can't remember, but, but he refers to it as the woolly mammoth. And the woolly mammoth is basically this cue in your brain that always thinks about how you are perceived by the wider... Um, society or wider community or those around you. Uh, and now his point is that you don't need it anymore, but the wider, um, uh, I guess, contention being made is that this is intrinsically um, hardwired into our brain because it's been something uh, utilistic for pretty much the entire history of mankind. And it was because in the early days when you were living perpetually in the survival mode, unlike we are today where there's an abundance of food and shelter, uh, you had to figure out how to survive. Now, if you weren't the strongest or the fastest or the um, the most uh, you know cleverest at finding berries, then you had to attach yourself to those people in the group. And the only way that you could do that is well, the way that they um, reason that you can do that best is by being more social. And so this led to our brains, uh, I guess, programming itself in a way that determined our belief systems or our belief sets. Um, based on what the group thinks rather than what we think as individuals. Okay. Interesting. Um, sort of getting back to one of the points I before, like, are humans rational? Um, maybe we are sometimes, but I think there's pretty clear examples of humans not being rational. Um, I don't know, like... <laughs> World Wars, uh, you know, the GFC, uh, you know, me sometimes on the weekends, etc. Um, Elon Musk and... on Twitter. <laughs> um, but, you know, and one of the things I used to think was like, okay, well, there's reason plus emotion. Mm. And is emotion just making us make bad decisions? Mm. And therefore, are humans being emotional? Is that a bad thing? And, and I think the answer is maybe. So I think emotions, I think, can be a really good thing. But I also think they can be a bad thing. And so I don't want to not feel. I don't want to like just be some purely emotional automaton. But I also think that sometimes I can do emotions well and I can do them badly. And so for me, as an example, um, emotions help me figure out what the right decision to make is. Like, is this going to help others? Is this going to, you know, um, you know make me sad or make me happy? Um, and that, there is sort of hopefully an underlying kernel of truth in that. And sometimes it's wrong. So I think what I wanted to say is basically emotions aren't necessarily bad, even though that sometimes emotions can lead you to make bad decisions. Yeah. Um, so I think that's actually a really good, um, uh, I guess, point that you're making here, Duncan, is that when we're talking about how facts don't necessarily change one's ideas, um, it might be more useful to look through the lens of, well, what is it that our minds are made up of that do help us form our belief system? Uh, and that can be in one way centered around the concept, the, the, the notion of ideas. 
Um, and what we basically construct through our own understanding that we assign value to. So um, I, I, I wrote this down because I wasn't going to remember it all. But, <laughs> but um, there, there's a lot of different schools of thoughts around what ideas actually are. If you look at people like Plato, um, they, he posits that it is something that exists independently of uh, any one person, um, that they're, they're out there for us to kind of discover. Um, Locke kind of gives it a similar lens of a representation of one's mind. But I struggle with these because they kind of put ideas in the same lens as a fact, which is something that is uh, true or false, whether you know it or not. Um, but I do like Immanuel Kant's um, uh, definition a lot more where he describes it more as a concept or opposed to a concept where by definition um, you can't fully realize any one idea so he gives the example liberty the idea where um, any one person is fully um, you know, at right to decide how they want to live is an idea um, so it's not necessarily true or false it's something that you can then assign a value of possibly right or wrong or good or bad or better or worse and so when we're talking about ideas we're getting to a closer place where we can start thinking about what it is that make up people's minds or what we're able to do to change them yeah i think this is a good way of looking at things and so you know are there facts like i am 34 years old uh, i think that's a fact um although i'm sure maybe someone has definition of time <laughs> and, and an idea might be that doing a podcast with James is a good way to improve our friendship. Good idea, Doctor. <laughs> um, and I think that what I've come to sort of believe is that you can be right or wrong about facts, but you you can't really be right or wrong about ideas. Yeah. And that so an example would be when has something that you thought was really bad that's happened to you actually turned out to be a good thing? Mm. Um, and so your idea of this circumstance or this event was totally wrong you know three weeks after the fact you're like oh, actually that was a blessing in disguise sure as hell didn't realize it at the time and so the key point here is okay well i can't be right or wrong about facts i mean all i can do is have a, a sort of some level of understanding and that level of understanding is going to change and shift as i learn more about the world and myself and if i take that point of view it's a totally different mindset from like well i think this you know that's the, the view of this, that's what is true of this, where it's not true. It's only different shades of grey. Mm. So um, like I, I completely agree. I think what we're looking at here is this um, basic understanding of what we think makes a good idea. Um, and, <laughs> um, and so it, it, it creates the, um, I guess, further complexity when we're looking at things like, well, what about good ideas done poorly and, and you know, executed in a bad kind of way? And what about bad ideas done particularly well? Um, so, you know, we can all kind of, let's just say, agree that, you know, things like Marxism wasn't exactly a good idea. <laughs> but it was the execution of it that made it a significantly uh, horrendous impact. Um, whereas something like democracy, where we're looking at this through a uh, the lens of it being a better idea also can be executed in a very, very poor way. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're getting into deep on ideas. It's sort of one thing I sort of just wanted to point from before was 
that I'm not sure if you can be right. And so I think some things that people might think could be right is a scientific theory. Mm. Like, I don't know, if you burn methane, you get oxygen. So you get water and carbon dioxide. Um, but basically, most scientific theories from bygone eras have turned out to be wrong. Therefore, we must assume that all of today's or most of today's theories will turn out to be wrong too. And those are sort of things that I put in more of the facts category. Mm. Yeah, this is a chemical equation or whatever else it is, that it is what it is. And an idea like liberty was something which, you know, you, you, you was going to be changing and amorphous. And so the point, I suppose, was like, well, if you can't be right about things, what I think I used to do is to try to defend an idea. Someone would say, I'm not sure if I agree. And my immediate automatic response was, well, let's show why I'm right and they're not. <laughs> but I think one of the great quotes that I like recently is from Radio, who we quote all the time. Yep. The ability to change your mind is a superpower. So instead of trying to be right, now I try to understand why I'm wrong. Mm. And I try to make my ability to change my mind as flexible as possible. Whereas before I was trying to spend as much time trying to prove why I was right. Yeah. Uh. Gotta love Ray Dalio. So I think he puts um, <laughs> everything in a great perspective because when we're looking at ideas, like it's, it's, it's like what you said, like if I'm looking at ways in which I can be wrong, then what that does is it gives us further, um, you know, cause for strengthening our ideas because that's what they are. They're not these things that are, um, you know, either universally right or wrong in a binary way. Um, they're almost kind of like, you know, the way in which uh, we use heuristics, they're an approximation of something that we view as a concept. So if you ask yourself, like, okay, so I have this idea around, you know, what would be a good way for me to be to work as an employee, or I have a good idea around, you know, a, a business idea. Um, to say that this is just a great idea and not question it or challenge it, almost limits your ability to determine whether it is actually a good idea or not, but to take the opposite approach of saying, how might I be wrong? Uh, it you know, puts through a process of strength test, stress testing, which can make it a much stronger idea. Mm. Well, I agree. Um, so just to sort of this, like, you know, basically there are ideas where you can't be right. And so stop trying to be right and prove you're right and try to understand why you're wrong. So one of the quotes we kicked off with is, the only thing you can be right about is being wrong. Um, and so this is, there are, however, I suppose some jobs where you can be right. And so I thought I'd read this quote. If you want to be right all the time, go be an accountant for the rest of us, paleontologist, internet dating specialists, serial entrepreneurs, you know, read homeless millennials. We will just have to get used to being wrong. There's a strange paradox about wrongness. We go about our lives feeling like we're right, but in reality, we spend most of our lives being wrong. That's from Charles Chu. And I certainly did not realize this. Again, school, I think, teaches you, you want to get 100% or an A+. Plus. Mm. Um, but for most people's jobs, now, there might be a job where that's not the case. Uh, I don't know. Accountant is the one they use here. You know, you might be right and the books need to balance. But for everybody else, realizing that you can't be right, I think, is, is, is a key that took me a very, very long time to come to. And then the, the happiness comes from realizing where you are now realized you were wrong. So, therefore, you're less wrong. So happiness is actually finding out why you've been wrong. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think what, um, like, this has definitely been true for me. Is for, you know, because no one taught me this. No one helped show me how to separate your ideas from yourself or your identity. Um, mm. And that is something that can get tight. Like, so that this is where we look at the, the ego. 
Um, so when somebody challenges a particular idea or conviction you may have, we immediately, well, well I have in the past, <laughs> assumed that they're challenging me or that they're saying that I'm stupid. <laughs> um, and so that's what makes my, uh, myself go instinctively into defensive mode. I no longer have to try and search for the truth or search for where is the, um, the optimal ground. I'm suddenly put in a position where I feel like I have to defend myself. Um, so, um, like Duncan, as you put forward, by asking ourselves, how might I be wrong, kind of puts us in a much more humble setting where we're no longer looking at defending ourselves, but we're looking at how can we, uh, I guess, um, pick apart the idea. Yeah, uh, just to get on it again, there, like, you know, I was sort of learning there's facts, which there are, is a right or wrong, I'm 34, and then there's everything else where you can't be right or wrong. There's just some shade of understanding. And um, Ray Dalio, again, they say that um, <laughs> what gets you into pro problems is where you either have a blind spot. So about this idea, there's a part of it you have not seen. And when you learn about that new area, it changes your understanding of it, e.g. liberty or e.g., I don't know, democracy or... I don't know, in my case, how do you build a better, you know, science textbook for, for work or ego distortions. So you see the world, so you've seen that part, but you're not seeing it truly what it is. You're distorting it um, because you're, you know, your brain. Mm. And what I've come to believe is that the only way that you can, or the best way to find out about ego distortions and blind spots is that others tell you. Mm. You don't see them. That's why they're blind spots or ego distortions. So it's very hard for you to see this in yourself. Otherwise, you would see it. You know, mm. you're not like it's like you're passively deluding yourself. Maybe you're actively deluding yourself in certain areas, but most of the problems you don't realize you're deluding yourself. Mm. And so you need mirrors to do this. And so this is the thing like, should you seek out people who are going to agree with you or disagree with you? And I've come to believe you want to seek out people. Who are going to disagree it's not disagree to be disagreeable it's going to try to help you see the truth yeah uh i, I used to always think that the brain was the most incredible creation in all of the universe and then i realized what was actually telling me this <laughs> and what this what the point i'm getting at here is that left to our own devices our brain can actually uh work against us in some ways when it's because the brain is augmented for survival. It's not augmented for uh, enlightenment thinking, <laughs> enlightened thinking. Um, and so it'll always try and convince you that the way you're thinking is right, unless you're directly, um, allow yourself to be directly challenged. So um, to your point, if we can open our ideas up to be challenged, if we can put ourselves in a position where we welcome the, the critique of an idea in terms of, all right, so how might this fall through? How might this not take into consideration a number of different, uh, you know, inputs or data points? Um, then all we have is our own perspective. Um, you know, and we don't have a a objective view of the world. We only have our one perspective. And um, by that definition... We have our subjective view. We yeah. have our subjective view. And by that definition, it's a very limited view of the world. So we, mm. um, so we can only... Uh, I guess, strengthen ourselves by opening our perspective up to other people as well. I agree. So if you assume that you can't, there is no truth, there is no right about a lot of things, and that, you know, what gets you into trouble is, like, I don't know, blind spots and ego distortions, 
and that those are passive, you're not actively deceiving yourself, you're passively deceiving yourself, then it logically comes out that you want to find people who are going to help you find those things, blind spots and ego distortions, or people who disagree with you. And as James pointed out, naturally, I think your ego wants to protect itself because I don't think anyone wants to be thought of as being stupid. <laughs> but I think it's actually stupid not to realize that you don't know and that you should be trying to seek out people who disagree with you. Mm. So anyone, uh, people who disagree with you, there's an opportunity for growth there. If someone agrees with you, you probably don't learn much yeah. or anything. So the learning comes from disagreement. Mm. And so therefore, you do want to seek out people who disagree with you. And that's something that you know I didn't actively do. You basically need to cultivate people who are going to give you feedback. Mm. Most people see things, that old quote from the Bible, we don't often quote scripture here, <laughs> before you ask that person to remove a twig from their eye, try removing the log from your own one, which means mm. that you're going to give someone some piece of feedback, but you've got some giant piece of feedback to work on. The problem is you don't see it. And so what you need to do, I found, is cultivate relationships to give you feedback. Not only do you see people who disagree, you need to cultivate them. Because yeah. otherwise they don't exist. Everyone's just in polite society. And so my mother told me growing up so often, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. And there's beauty in that. But also there is ugliness in that too. And I didn't realize that until recently. Mm. Well, then, um, so this is a really good, um, I guess, way of looking at it. But what did it mean to be nice to someone? <laughs> because uh, I can't remember the passage in uh, what Ray Dalio had said before, but it, the difference between um, you know being kind to someone in a way that is in their best interest and simply um, trying to save face or just being nice to them on the surface level. Because the nicest thing you can actually do to someone is to be honest with them. Um, and and this in this uh, is something that I believe very strongly in the um, you know the concept of radical candor, which is the intersection between uh, being able to confront someone directly, but also deeply caring about them and their circumstances. So I definitely think that there is an element where we need to be mindful of how we're actually you know positioning ourselves with other people and you know treating them with kindness. But I think that even if it's hard for them to accept at first, the kind of thing you can do for them is to be brutally honest. Yeah, so um, I think without being able to be honest, it's hard to help someone grow, but you need to do it in a good way. Yeah. So what I say is constructive, not destructive, discussions, not arguments. Yeah. And it's easy if you disagree with someone to get defensive and then your tone goes from being open-minded, I want to find out how you can help me learn about why I have a misunderstanding in the world and therefore be less wrong, to, all right, dickhead, you know, <laughs> you ain't so beautiful. Have you had a look in the mirror yourself? Um, and, and, and so one of the ways I've found to be able to try to be constructive, not destructive, is and discussions on arguments is straw men versus steel women arguments. I don't know if you've heard this, but no. basically someone puts an idea out there and if you use the straw man argument of that, it's try to find the easiest hole in what they've said and then just go about attacking the hole and destroying their argument. Mm. A steer woman response is instead of doing that, try to find the strongest version of what they've said. Don't worry about some esoteric hole. 
try to find the truth of what they're saying and then try to have a discussion about the good parts of what they're saying. Mm, mm. And so the straw man is, is, is finding the weakest link and then just attacking it and being like, at the end of this, ha-ha, you're stupid. What you said doesn't make any sense. Yep. And the steel woman is, okay, find the best version of what they said mm. and how to turn this into constructive. And so 18-year-old Duncan wasn't mature. Uh, let's put it mildly. And Duncan <laughs> probably needs to do a lot of maturing. <laughs> and so 18-year-old uh, Duncan might have been like, all right, well, you know, we're having, you know, a beer or whatever. Um, and it's legal to drink in Australia at 18. And, you know, so-and-so said something. It might be a bit of fun to try and tear down their argument. It's kind of like intellectual jousting. Maybe back in the day, I don't know, some animals, um, you know, might fight to then see who, you know, the, wins the female's affections. Um, and perhaps proving one's mental, you know, <laughs> acumen was done through, you know, intellectual jousting and, and a pretty, um, un, I don't know, sympathetic one. So, yes, yeah. one way I found to be constructive, not destructive, is to do the steel woman argument, not the straw man argument. So a, a little insight into Duncan's interpretation of peacocking at the right moment. <laughs> there we go. That's pe- <laughs> yeah. like, How not to do life. <laughs> like, just do everything I did when I was 18. <laughs> Um, but uh, the, 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 the real insight there um, was the point about um, having a discussion and not an argument and mm. how you can turn this around um, by finding a point of agreement first and building upon that. Mm. Um, I like it. And so what, I, um, what, I, what was really interesting was um, a study that I came across where um, so the way the brain works, this, the way this was explained, the way the brain works is that you don't just like download words that someone is saying into this lexicon of, um, you know, intuitive truth. Your brain encodes stuff in a way that you actually um, understand everything else that you have as part of your foundation. Um, and what they found was that when people are discussing things they agree on, they can see the brain encoding it into um, whatever it is that, um, that needs to be stored into the hippocampus. But when people are arguing and disagreeing, that process of encoding isn't happening. And what they found is that when you change it around from, well, yeah, there's something that you and I disagree on. Let's say it's vaccination. And one person is saying that they're, um, you know, they cure diseases and they're net net good for you. And the other person is saying that they're too risky, they're dangerous, they can give you autism. Then if you instead just talk about at first, the point in which where you can agree, which is, well, you know, they, you no longer get measles anymore, <laughs> which is a bad thing, um, and expand upon that, then that's where you can find a point um, of common ground. Mm. And that is where it can actually have a much more powerful effect of having a constructive conversation rather than a destructive argument. Yeah, I really like my, what I took from that is you, you find agreement first, and then it's like, so one way I sort of put to do this is when someone's speaking to you, um, they, it might be a friend and James might be like, hey, Duncan, I, I've got this problem at work. Um, can we talk about it? And the first thing I've, you know, now realized you should do, and again, you know, 20-year-old Duncan didn't realize this, is make sure you understand what the hell they're talking about <laughs> and then have them understand that you understand mm. rather than just be like, all right, I've heard you, James. Here's your solution. And I've basically heard 50% of what James has said um, because I don't have the context James has and a whole lot of other things. And so the first thing I sort of try to do is repeat back 
what I think someone has said to me and then say, is this right? Is this my understanding right? And here's something. Almost always, like four out of five times, I will not be right. Mm. Like my repeating back to them at best is like 80% right. Mm. Sometimes you're like uh, 0% right. That's pretty (laughs) embarrassing, those ones. And so finding agreement, like, you know, if you're not even talking about the same thing, and I've realized that in the past, it's two ships sailing in the night, you know, (laughs) past each other. Uh, You know, it's really hard to have a constructive conversation. Mm. So you want to talk to someone and be able to disagree. But if you or but you can't disagree with them until you understand what the hell yeah, they've said. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't spend time doing that. Um, I was like straight into helping mode, and and actually helping mode was I'm going to bash your ego, and I'm not even going to talk about what the hell you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um. There, there was a famous saying: if you can't argue from their position, then you don't have um a a, a well-rounded uh, understanding of the problem. You simply have your own opinion. And I find there's a lot of truth in that because um, if I'm in a position where there's an idea, it's not a character assassination, it's something where we're exploring a particular idea around a problem that we're having. Um, And if I'm unable to explain back to the other person or to the round table, the other side of the viewpoint, then that should be telling enough that... I'm not in a position to be able to argue my point because I don't understand how the other way could actually be of any benefit. Um, and, yeah. and it's it's so it's an immensely powerful tool, as you've already um, lined, uh, outlined, Duncan, that having um, a point in which you explain back to the other person their position um, solidifies everybody's understanding. And I'll, I'll just reference one um, time recently when I saw that. Um, it was when Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris were having one of their tour discussions. And mm. I believe this one was in Vancouver. Mm. Uh, <coughs> and the... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Uh, um, and it was the point of contention. Like They literally just had an entire evening of talking and then they came back for a second night. And they started off by explaining the other person's position, particularly around where they disagreed. Um, and it would like humbly in a sense of listening to the other person explain um, their position in such a succinct and well constructed manner. Um, it was all it was almost disarming in a way because you now feel like this person is on the same page as me. They understand my point of view, but now they just can express freely where they see it differently. Um, and it, it just blew my mind. It was it was, it was incredible the way in which they were able to do that. Yeah, um, so James mentioned a quote before, and I think I have the exact one, which I will send here. It's from Charlie Munger. I never allow <laughs> myself to have an opinion on anything that I don't know the other side's argument better than they do. Mm. And so what I used to think was, well, therefore, can I have a discussion about anything? And so what I've realized is that you can have a discussion where the goal is to learn. It's not, well, I have my opinion, you have your opinion. Opinions battle, now one opinion prevails. <laughs> that, that's not what we're doing. Because you can't be right or wrong, you're just constantly updating your understanding of something. Mm. And so you can go in and have a discussion, and what you're looking to find out is why your current understanding can be improved, i.e. why you were wrong. Mm. And so one of the things um, which, yeah, I think is useful is, is what James said is, you know, where Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris tried to restate each other's opinions. And I don't know, Jordan Peterson's quite a controversial person. Sam Harris is as well. And what I found is, is getting into this, um, 
your emotional view on someone can tarnish whether or not you agree with them. Mm. So it's not just in the, and so as an example, I'm not a Trump fan. And I caught myself really disliking a lot of stuff that he did. And I remember, you know, he was going to speak to Kim Jong-un of North Korea. And I was like, oh, here we go. And then I was like, hold up, Duncan. You should want him to get peace on the Korean peninsula. But you're initially kind of like, mm. you know, Trump's going to go in there and wreck things. And I was just like, ah, oh, dickhead. And I, and I found a little bit of me wanting him to kind of not get peace. And I'm like, this is really bad. <laughs> And, and, and I, was, I was tainting, like, because, because I don't like Trump, really, I was kind of like, everything he does is crap. And so I then yeah. feel that there's probably something in with everyone you agree with and something inside someone with everyone you disagree with. So I like James a lot, but we don't agree on 100% of things. Mm. And so I was like, well, what's the thing that I can agree with the most with Trump? And I have a surface level of knowledge of this, so I probably changed my mind. But net-net, I think that China hasn't had... I think you want to have it, it, fair trading agreements, which basically means both sides are playing by the same rules. Yeah. Then you have better outcomes. And I believe that China hasn't been playing by the same rules as, say, the US or Australia. And that this has meant they've been able to distort markets to their own advantage. And that net-net, we needed to try to get them to play by the same rules. And that I think on... You know, average, and there's some good and bad bits. The Trump, you know, administration's stance on trade with China is net net better than the Obama administration one was. And to say that I like Obama more than Trump is to put things mildly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think this is also something when you're having a discussion with someone, try not to let your view of them, I don't like this person, taint everything that comes out of their mouths. I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. Abraham Lincoln. Get out. I've never heard that. That's an epic quote. <laughs> it has been... Um, so this is a mental model that I apply all oh, the that's time. Awesome. All the time. Um, and it just goes to the heart of what you were just saying there around Trump, who I completely share your sentiment, Duncan. I do not um, you know, like the individual on any personal level. Um, but if you look at it in a wider context of your, per- of your personal life and people that you interact with... Um, when we observe the fact that we don't actually like someone, that is curing or creating a considered a considerable amount of bias in our view towards that person. Um, the other, the, um, so, and what this can also do is um, lead to a thing called fundamental attribution error, mm. uh, and that is when you attribute somebody's actions to their character. Where no, I don't know. If that's what it is. Hold on. And you would attribute your action to um, your situation, but you wouldn't do it the other way around. Can you give an example? So an example would be um, when somebody has... I've got one for you. <laughs> you don't have one. Uh, you give me the example, Duncan. Okay, so if you're driving and somebody oh, yeah. cuts you off, yep, yep. that person's a dickhead because they're just rude. you know. But if you're driving and you cut someone off, you did it because you were rushing to get to the emergency room at the hospital. Yeah, exactly right. So fundamental attribution error is basically attributing good things for the reason you did something yeah. and bad things for the reason somebody else yeah. did something. Yeah. So I think I... Um... I think I did the uh, the observer agent version of it, but it's the, it's still yeah. it's still it's, it's still the same thing. Um, going back to uh, your observations about Trump and what happens when we um, decide that we don't like someone. The other the other really good thing is that when you don't like someone, pretty much everything they do you hate <laughs> or annoys yeah. you, just annoys you. 
Um, and that also can be a, a, um, a big impact on our ability to be able to find not necessarily truth, but a, um, a balanced approach to being able to develop good ideas. So what I try to do is that whenever someone annoys me, <laughs> I first try to make sure I have observed that fact so that I can say, right, so um, this person is someone who I do not, um, you know, gel well with or who I do not deem too highly. It might be simply be because I don't know them well enough, right? We're all heroes of our own story. We're not all, you know, people don't wake up and get out of bed in the morning to, you know, shit on each other's days. Like, we all want to have a... Well, we can't swear. <laughs> <laughs> Def- God, yeah. To defecate. Uh, yeah. um, you know, we all want to have, you know, a good time. So, um, the, I guess the point to that that I'm making is that if we can see, you know, people for, you know, what they're trying to achieve rather than just being hindered to our own objectives, then we're far more likely to see the truth or to get through to good ideas. Yeah, totally. Um, so what we're sort of saying is like, I think you want to seek out people who disagree with you, mm-hmm. but also sometimes you want to seek out disagreeable people. <laughs> but you've got to try to learn to act with equanimity when you're with them, uh, you're calm under pressure and not get into argumentative, you know, yeah, so yeah. constructive, not destructive discussions, not arguments. Mm. And I find that my view of somebody, so if James came and told me that, I don't know, we should get rid of abortion, and I very much believe in a woman's right to choose, um, I'd probably have a discussion with you about it. Um, but I see some people talking about it like Trump, and I'm like, that dickhead! Don't <laughs> um, <laughs> swear! And, yeah, no, that wasn't, I reckon that's a different level, the D word and the S word. And so anyways, um, another quote from Mr. Munger, we are all learning, modifying or destroying, destroying ideas all the time. Mm. Rapid destruction of your ideas when the time is right is one of the most valuable qualities you can have. But to do this, you need people who are going to disagree with you. And you also need to be able to find things that disagreeable people say that you're going to agree with. And if you just paint people with a brush, like I don't want to have any kind of someone disagree with me, that's not good. But then there's also, maybe I can have a a discussion about something someone disagrees with with James, because I like the dude, but somebody else, I can't. You know, it's like, no, you've got to try to find these things. And so the other reason I really like having discussions is, I know that's the next point. Yeah, basically those are the things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So much of what we um, consider to be socially acceptable or, um, you know, conventional wisdom, even as early as 20 years ago, um, is no longer held today. Um, and so what this kind of draws us to is the, is the understanding that much of what we understand or um, assign our values today may well be shown to be wrong or misguided in the future. And if we have this implicit understanding that we exist in a world where, you know, our conceptual view of it can be quite inaccurate or quite wrong um, or, you know, is due for an upgrade, then that can't, that puts us in a position where we don't have to hold on to everything so fastidiously. Um, and so I think that's actually, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's simple things like around gender equality or even further back in time, racial equality where we think about what we're going through today in, um, you know, whether it's the Enlightenment era or people who say they're woke, 
Um, <laughs> um, there's a lot still that goes on today that we might consider to be acceptable, but you know, in 10, 20, 30, 50 years' time, with new scientific data, with new evidence, with new insights, we will quite possibly look back on ourselves uh, in today's world and be horrified by what we did and um, you know, our actions. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I kind of want to teach it that says, I is woke. <laughs> um, <laughs> but things are going to change. I mean, 50 years ago, getting the cane at school from the, you know, teacher or, or the principal was a common thing. And 90% of parents thought it was fine. Rule of thumb. Now, yeah, now only 10% of parents think it's fine that students can get, the, you know, you know co co corporal punishment. I'm like, where are those 10% of students, parents that think, a teacher like physically abusing a student is fine. <laughs> um, and, and so what I sort of sort of think is that I've reframed discussions in my head to investigation talks. So basically, as said before, we're always learning, modifying or destroying our ideas. As such, it's not two views opposing and then one prevailing. Every single thing is just an investigation of an idea mm. where at the end of it, you've modified, mm. you know, or learned. And sometimes you destroy it because you're like, oh, God, that was ridiculous. And so these investigations, it's kind of like helping you sculpt this idea out of this block like, to find out what's actually in there. Mm. And one of the things I like is another quote. This is from Mortimer Adler, who's a, who's a person who's very smart and no longer with us. Um, the person who says they know what they think but cannot express it usually doesn't know what they think. Mm. And investigations, or AK discussions, you know, help me better articulate and understand something than before. And so basically, when you can have a discussion with someone, i.e. have a different point of view about an idea and learn from each other, at the end of it, it's really energizing. So it's not just they're constructive, not destructive, discussions on arguments. There's like neutral, energizing or draining. Mm. And it used to be that almost all points of disagreement were draining. So then we'd just have chats about nothing, you know. Except you, when you and I disagreed, Duncan, they were super fun. Yeah. <laughs> but now doing it well is really energizing. Mm. And so I've gone from them being draining to sort of being neutral to being energizing. So the best discussions I have or the best conversations I have with people are actually discussions where we have a discussion about an idea and different points of view. Yeah. But we do it in an energizing fashion. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think has taken me a long while to, to sort of learn and to try to figure out how to do. Yeah. Well, we just about hit the one hour mark, uh, Duncan, and I think that's a really good uh, place to, um, you know, bring this, this uh, conversation to. Uh, did you want to uh, do the summary first? Um, okay, so there are facts and there are ideas. <laughs> Um, and I used to think that for ideas that you had a view and that you could be right about an idea, but I no longer believe you can. And that the key reasons you get into trouble are because of blind spots on that idea, i.e. you've only seen part of it, or your, or ego distortions, i.e. you see part of it, but you see it wrong. So basically, the only thing you could be right about is being wrong. <laughs> and happiness is learning why you were wrong, i.e. modifying and improving your understanding of the world. To do that, one of the best tools I know is to have good quality discussions or investigations, investigation, you know, conversations with people. But to do this, you need to cultivate the relationships so that they know there's a, a space to talk about this and it's a safe space. When they do give you a disagreement with your point, 
you're not going to get all wounded and then go and attack, you know, counter-attack mode. And so I've been able to, I believe, go from when I was 20. I either had discussions about not much, like, oh, did you watch The OC? You know, a great TV show in case anyone wants something. <laughs> or, or, you know, hey, I think so-and-so is cute. Or actually, let's have an intellectual joust where I'm trying to destroy your argument and be crowned victor. To actually now having the majority of my hopeful you know, conversations be discussions that are energizing or investigations. And also that I realized that I was tainting people, e.g. Trump or someone I didn't like, you know, and this everything that came out of their mouth, I didn't like and I didn't want them to succeed, even though I think we should definitely want peace on the Korean Peninsula. And I really shouldn't be too fussed if it's Trump that gets it, you know, there. So, spoiler alert, but it turns out we're not entirely rational human beings. <laughs> yeah. So understanding this as a, a as a found as a feature of how our brain works and not a bug, um, mm. it help it only lends to our ability to get closer to what we consider as being good ideas, um, or filter or improving ideas by understanding us ourselves as emotional uh, human beings who have motives, who have desires, um, and you know who also have an inherent programming to want to be accepted by their wider group community or um, you know, those around them. Um, and I think ways in which we can do this is by understanding and decoupling ideas from identity so that we can uh, explore ideas in the isolation and not have to feel like that people's egos or that people's own um, sense of value or worth are what's being um, critiqued or being uh, attacked. Uh, it's important that we also help uh, each other understand that by exploring these ideas it, the, um, and by breaking them down and by pulling them apart, it is for the purpose of improving them. It's for the purpose of finding where can we gain further insight. Uh, and I think one of, the, one of the most effective tools that I have found in my journey in, in applying this is through radical candor where you are very clear in that people understand you care personally about them, but you are still willing to directly confront them on whether, you know, their position or um, the idea that we're currently discussing openly, um, you know, is one that is of sound judgment, one that is um, well considered, or one that has a lot of uh, blind spots and uh, are not too um, uh, well constructed. Uh, it is also uh, good for us to make sure that we're uh, also mindful of ourselves, that if we have a bias towards someone, that we're not clouding our own judgment. So everybody is trying, well, as a general rule, people <laughs> um, are trying to live a good life. People are trying to do good, and they're not trying to just be an obstacle to yourself. So if there's someone who is something that you see as a hindrance or an obstacle or a block, if you stop your uh, way of thinking as um, thinking that they're just trying to, um, you know, impart uh, a block on you and start thinking about, well, this person's trying to, you know, achieve something on their end. And if I understand them better, I might be able to understand their viewpoint better. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, if anything, I think is worth pointing out, James and I, by having a podcast, actually one of the core things we wanted to do was to listen to ourselves talk so that we could hopefully get better at having discussions. So they could hopefully be more constructive than destructive. 
And, you know, this, I think, has happened. If you go back to the first one, oh, I think we've learned better how to have a discussion, how to, to be energizing. And so final tip is if you want to try to learn about discussing better, record yourself. <laughs> and then you'll listen to yourself and you'll be like, Jesus, once you get past the sound of your voice, yeah. which is horrible, you then realize that you cannot converse well. Yeah. And so I believe that we've gotten better at this yeah. and that this has been a tool for this. Okay, finally, the next one, and there has been a long break between podcasts, hopefully this will be more, uh, you know, sooner, um, will be about Philosophize This, which is a podcast on philosophy by a person called Stephen West. And it's going to be on the four schools of philosophy from the Hellenic age. I know this sounds hectically theoretical, but we'll attempt to try to bring it into how the hell it applies to our lives. Mm. Mm. Can't wait. All right. <laughs> All right. Cheers, dude. Thanks, okay.